The Maryland road was thick with trees, and the carriage driver was worried. His principal passenger was the president's wife. Mrs. Adams was stoic, but clearly put out at being lost south of Baltimore for hours en route to the federal city. The leaves were turning, not the bright colors of Massachusetts sugar maples, but dull maroons and browns that suited her mood. Abigail Adams was not in a forgiving frame of mind when she described her arrival in a letter to her daughter, Nabby. Woods are all you can see from Baltimore until you reach the city, which is only so in name. In the city, there are buildings enough, if they were compact and finished, to accommodate Congress and those attached to it. But as they are, and scattered as they are, I see no great comfort for them. Comfort, Adams was convinced, would have been delivered to the house if New Englanders had been in charge. Very many of the present inconveniences would have been removed, she declared, as if the Puritan work ethic could have saved the day. Yet she couldn't help but be charmed by the grand and superb scale of the house with its view of boats plying the waters to Alexandria. It is a beautiful spot, capable of every improvement. And the more I view it, the more I am delighted with it. John Adams had arrived on the 1st of November, 1800. Abigail Adams, two weeks later. They occupied the new executive mansion in the new city, a month ahead of schedule, a schedule set by Congress in the Residence Act 10 years earlier. Lest we think that this was a shining example of the federal government completing its first major project on time, only six rooms in the gigantic residence were any semblance of finished. Earlier in his term, John had written from Philadelphia to his dearest friend, as he addressed Abigail in his letters. He moaned about his presidential workload and sighed, I must go to the federal city. That must be my farm in future, and I shall have as much more plague as less pleasure in it than I had in the Quincy farm. In his usual conscientious manner, he added, except that all the pleasure of life that is solid consists in doing one's duty. In 1788, John and Abigail had moved from their first home, a salt box at the foot of Penn's Hill, across town to Peacefield, a more elegant gentleman's farm in Quincy, near Boston. With its fields, orchard, barns, and garden, Peacefield was typical of prosperous New England farmsteads in the late 18th century. Between the house and outbuildings, the space formed a yard or yards, workplaces filled with sounds of splitting wood and smells of laundry boiling with lye soap, butchering, not to mention a steaming pile of compost. In his diary on September 8th, 1796, John Adams had recorded the day's activities in Quincy, Sullivan gone for seaweed, Bass and Thomas carting manure from the hill of compost in the yard, Billings and Prince laying wall, Bristler and James picking apples and making cider, Stetson widening the brook. That in American English we still call the space around the house the yard, in England, it is garden, speaks to the value, linguistic and otherwise, placed on utility. New England gardens were fenced to keep the livestock out, 
as early village law stipulated common grazing. At first, simple palings, stripped branches or saplings, sharpened to points at one end, were stuck into the ground to make enclosures. As the decades passed and wealth increased, rustic palings and rail fences gave way to elegant pickets and ornamental gates. Modest flower beds morphed into patterned boxwood-lined borders. But these garden improvements had not reached the grounds of the president's house by the time John and Abigail Adams moved in. There was no yard, no walls or fencing. The house was drafty and the plaster still wet on the walls. 